This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. Are you ready? Okay, we're in the last book of Paul's prison epistles, the book of Philemon, and I'm not teaching today. Oh, stop it, stop. But Dr. Sarah Boyd, so I'm, I'm introducing her this morning. Normally I know because she's part of our teaching team, and most of you um, know Sarah, but some of you have, been, uh, have, have joined since Sarah's taught. And so Sarah comes over, she's an apologist. She serves across the water, lives across the water, and comes over here on a regular basis because she's part of our teaching team. And just an incredible um, teacher of, of, of the Bible. So I'm going to encourage you. I have my, my notepad down here. I'm going to be taking notes from the book of Philemon. And if you want to bring up your phone um, or your Bible, if you, you know, depending on however you bring it, go to that little one-chapter book because Sarah's going to come right now. And she's going to like open up Philemon to us. Next week, we have something different for you. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But would you welcome Sarah this morning to Gateway? Yay. Thank you, Tom. Good to have you. It's always good to be here. Appreciate that. Well, I, I almost actually couldn't speak this morning, and um, it's not because I missed the ferry. Uh, I've just I've given up on the ferry, so I just drive around on Sundays now. It's just lovely. Listen to some worship music. No frustration and having to pray through anger and bitterness when they cancel the ferry. So, so that wasn't it. But the, but the reason I almost couldn't speak is because um, I got to hold little Hannah down there. And I was like, Tom, you might have to fill in for me. I'm, I'm not sure I'm actually going to be able to like let her go. So uh, Jen, it's, it's fine. I'm not bitter that you're holding her right now. Well, we are, we are wrapping up this series uh, in Philemon this morning. And we could really kind of sum up the, the entire book with this idea of Paul's appeal to love. He really is writing an appeal to love. There's going to be elements of obedience. But um, I recently had a firsthand experience that I think sort of highlights the reality of what Paul is doing. So a couple Mondays ago was my birthday. And you know, birthdays on a Monday, never fabulous, right? Uh, But I work with high schoolers, and so they did the thing where, like, we do the pledge and prayer in the morning, and and then they said, happy birthday, Dr. Boyd, and then all the kids were like, it's your birthday? And I'm like, yes, it is. And they're like, so we should have, like, a fun day, and I was like, we are, because Bible lecture is the best day, right? And because it's my birthday, y'all are going to participate even in first period, right? And there was this inward groan because wouldn't you know that very day there was a large paper due in another class. And even though our teens had had so much time to write that paper, they were up real late, that night before trying to get it done. So they walk, I mean, like, you know when a paper's due because they wear the shoes that are really like slippers and the sweatpants and hoodie, no makeup, hair to the side, sleep crusties still in the eye. You know, they're, they're dragging, they've got the, the venti, whatever it is, energy drink or coffee, and they're just, they're rolling in real slow. And so this is the audience, and because it was my birthday, 
I have never seen so many students fight the good fight to try to stay awake when they'd only had like a couple hours of sleep. And so I would ask a question and you'd see hands go up in the air and they're like slouching, but they're like, we're doing it for Miss Boyd. Like, and it was this appeal to love and I was like, oh man, I feel like this is, like you love me because you are trying to engage in Bible class at 8 a.m. and I know this is just for me. And so it's, it's that same idea that, that Paul is relationally here writing this letter to Philemon. It's very personal, it's very relational, and yet what Paul is going to ask of Philemon is actually a very difficult thing. It would have been a very culturally kind of atypical thing, but it's a gospel thing, and so Paul makes this appeal to love. And, you know, I know we've been in, the, in this series here, and, and maybe some know this, and, but, but maybe some don't. Let's just talk a little bit about the context of the letter. Philemon had had a slave named Onesimus who had run off and in the process had become a believer. And Paul is basically writing to Philemon saying, accept him back as a brother in Christ. Now let's just talk about slavery for a minute because we cannot read the book of Philemon as modern people and not deal with that to some degree. Okay? And, I, and I want to do that because I don't want there to be anything in our way where this is kind of nagging at us and so we can't actually hear what's in the book because of it. So in, in Scripture, you have basically this tension between what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. The Bible is actually very honest about the fact that there is a problem in the world, that we, that we broke the world that God created for us, and that there are very harsh realities that God did not, does not like, did not intend, does not applaud, does not prescribe. And slavery is one of those things. We would also say, like, why does the Bible record polygamy? Because it was a thing that happened. So it's descriptive of what was happening, but it's not prescriptive in saying that this is what God's want. And, and if this bothers us, well, well why, does, why is it even in the Bible? Let me ask you this. Like, like, what would you have God do? Create a world where there was no slavery? He did. And then it got broken, and sin entered the world, and now people don't do things right, and there's power and oppression and, and wrongs and very, very real evils in the world. So what would you have him do? Step into the story to fix it? Oh, interesting. He did, right? But the whole story of humanity is progressing from what was originally created holy back to a final point of redemption. And so the whole story of humanity is very incrementally moving towards the moral ideal that God intended all along without any of the harms. Now, we might be tempted to say with this issue, well, why couldn't God just say, no, that's wrong, let's fix it, and immediately just demand the moral ideal? Well, friends, we haven't even done that good of a job with the incremental progress that God has asked of us. 
And, and let me give you like a real life context. Like we've emerged from COVID, right? Remember the time where like kids went to school online and it was bad, it was ugly. There were fights at home and tears. It was, it was, it was I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to bring up the fresh trauma, right? But you know, at Cedar Park, we were, we were only closed with online school for uh, the first spring. And then we were able with a lot of different work and a lot of different things to, to, to open. And over the next couple years, while public school was still online in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, we had students, even up to three years after COVID, coming and, and enrolling in Cedar Park. And what we found, and I, I know I've talked to Tommy about this, same thing at Gateway, like all educators would tell you this, is that that online schooling really hurt our kids. It hurt them socially, emotionally, spiritually, and academically. In fact, basically the national report card grade that we get like from organizations that measure things, like we're basically failing in math right now because of COVID. Like the academic standard is so below where it was and should be because of this like brokenness in the system that we experienced because of COVID. Now, why am I bringing this up with slavery? Here's, here's the point. As an educator, when these, when these students come in and they, it's not even their fault, but they're just so academically low, you cannot just say, okay, but this is the standard. This is where you should be. Now do this. They can't. They, they can't. So, like, so for, seriously, the last few years, like, you could talk to any educator, and this would be the true story. We've been like, okay, come on, let's, let's like, write a whole sentence. Like, like, complete sentences are a thing, right? Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna read a whole book. Oh, we're gonna read a whole, oh, we're gonna do some math and you don't get to cheat like you did when you were online. <laughs> you actually have to show your work. And it has been laborious to like bring them along. Friends, it's the same thing with us. It's incrementally God refining and sanctifying and preserving and progressively moving the story of, of humanity to where he wants it. So he never wanted slavery. There's not going to be slavery in eternity, but there is brokenness in the world and the Bible is honest about recording it. So, so I just feel like that's really important. Here's, here's a, just one more thing I want to say because as Americans, we cannot think of slavery in the ancient context without first filtering it through the grotesque brutality of slavery in the antebellum South. So I want to just show you a couple verses that show you that even when scripture does speak about in, in any kind of prescriptive way here, it clearly says that that is not okay. So let just, just look, Old Testament, Exodus 21, 16, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. That's a capital offense that God wrote into the law of his people. It's affirmed in Deuteronomy, which is the second law. And then in 1 Timothy, we also see this passage. And I've bolded some things for you to kind of see here a little bit because it's listed with a whole bunch of other sins that we just don't need to talk about this morning, but it says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, and then skip down this whole line of sin, and it says, for slave traders, and then it goes on, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine 
that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So while we are talking about a passage that does involve slavery, because that was a reality in the ancient world, I want you to put yourself into the context of that ancient world where it's a thing and listen to what Paul is actually asking Philemon to do. Not only is he saying now, accept a slave as your brother, but he's basically saying, forgive the wrong, forgive any uh, financial uh, troubles that he's caused you or if anything that he took from you. Paul wants Onesimus to stay with him, but because there's this unresolved conflict now between two brothers, he's saying there has to be reconciliation. And so that is the, the context of the letter of Philemon that Paul is writing from prison. So look at with me just a couple verses from Philemon this morning, and we're going to unpack some things and apply some things and then do some things. Sound good? Okay. Verse 9 of Philemon, because there's only one chapter. So you ever want to feel really good about your Bible reading plan, right? It's like Philemon, the prison epistles, the minor prophets. You're like, I read a book of the Bible a day. I'm so spiritual. Okay. So verse 9 says this, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. Well, instead of what? Paul said, Paul's basically saying, I could command you to do this. This is the right thing to do. But I'm encouraging you because of love, because you've been loved, because you've been given so much love by Christ that you're going to extend that now to a brother in Christ, and I'm appealing to you on the basis of love. If we were to follow Paul's argument down even further, we come to verse 21 where it says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Oh, Paul. I mean, that's, that's heavy. I know that what I'm asking is big, but I know, Philemon, I know you. You're going to do even more than what I ask. And why would Paul be confident of that in, in Philemon's life? Because Philemon was a true believer, because he had been reconciled to Christ. And so with this love that he'd been given in his love for Christ and thus his obedience to Christ, Paul is confident that Philemon is going to do what Paul is asking him to do, which is to reconcile with Onesimus. So the question might linger, well, how do we know that like, Philemon actually did it? Well, the fact that the letter got circulated and copied and circulated and copied and it's in the canon is a pretty good indication that like, Philemon did the thing. Now, if I was Philemon, I might have burned the letter. I don't know, right? But the fact that it, it stayed in existence means Philemon did something with the letter that he received, that it gets copied, it gets passed around, it becomes the standard, it becomes the teaching. So there is something here for all of us to learn from the context of Philemon about love, obedience, and reconciliation. And so that's what we want to talk about in just the next few minutes that we have together. The first thing I want us to see is that love often requires us to sacrifice our rights. I mean, think about that. That love requires us to give up what we deserve. Or if we want to hold on to a wrong and, and we want to say, I've been wronged, 
If you are going to love, you have to be willing to let go of that harm to some degree. And this is interesting because Philemon would have had the legal right to punish Onesimus. And Paul is appealing to him and saying, give up your rights. In fact, that's something that Paul often does. He often talks about giving up rights, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But before we get to those verses, I, I, I guess I want to deposit this with us, that as Americans, as American believers, we have very strong feelings about our rights. And that's not bad. Praise God for the rights that we have, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> no pun intended there. <clears throat> so I, I don't want you to hear me saying that there's not arenas where those conversations should be had or where we, where we don't stand for freedom. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there is a pattern here that we see in Scripture where for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love, I often give up what I do or I give up position in order that others might see Christ demonstrated. And, you know, Paul is asking something very big of Philemon, but it's also something that we've seen him demonstrate over and over and over as he's in jail for the gospel, even as he's penning these words, right? So <clears throat> I, want, I want to look at a couple things here. Uh, this letter of Philemon was written to the, to the church of Colossae, which was a Roman colony, and it would have had a lot of retired soldiers that had sort of, you know, retired, they'd served their time, and then because of the patriotism towards, towards Rome and Colossae, this is where they sort of retired to. Now, they would have been off fighting campaigns and where you conquer people, and we know that Rome was really good at conquering people, then the people who you conquer become your servants. So slavery is like a big context here. People are very, very patriotic towards Rome here. And so, in the other letter that, that you guys have already talked about, in Philippians chapter 3, just be reminded of what Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from here, uh, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizen, like, think about what he's saying to, to the context. Your citizenship is not Rome. Your citizenship is heaven. Your allegiance is towards the Lord. And I, and I want you to see that, that Paul lived this out, and, he, and, and Philemon is not the only one that he kind of, uh, you know, gives this message to. Like, so if we look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, there is a big meeting in the church where they're talking about circumcision and, and do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to come to faith? And Paul is advocating, Paul and Barnabas are advocating, no, they do not need to be circumcised. And basically the council is going to land on that decision that, that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because look at how the very next verses of Scripture outline something that might seem somewhat paradoxical. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul had just advocated that, that 
that you do not have to be circumcised to be a believer. But then what does he, what does he advocate for, for Timothy to do? To get circumcised. Why? So that it's not a hindrance to the gospel. So the gospel always supersedes the rights. The gospel and our citizenship in heaven always supersedes any earthly loyalty. So in every engagement that we have, our framework has to be, how do I represent the truth of the gospel? So not only in what I say, but how I say it. And so here is, here is Paul encouraging believers to have the chief concern, the chief obligation to make Christ known, which trumps political parties, it trumps other passions that draw our allegiance because our allegiance is to Christ alone. And so at times that will mean laying down things that maybe we have a right to or that we would deserve or maybe that are legitimate wrongs because love often requires the sacrifice. The other thing I want us to see here is that love and obedience are inseparable. That's a hard one for me because I don't like to obey all the time. In fact, you could talk to my parents, and I never got in trouble, like, outside of the home, right? But, like, at home. I really didn't like being told what to do. I still don't. In fact, the other day, my mom and I were carpooling to work. This is, I'm just going to, like... I am still not fully sanctified, and this story is going to show you. <laughs> we are driving to work. I'm driving. I, I drive to work every day. I know how to get to work. <laughs> I do. And so we're in a lane that, that eventually is going to like become a turn-only lane. I know that. Okay? Uh, and I'm just about to get over... Like, I'm, like, just about to, like, reach for my blinker when my mom says, aren't you going to get over? <laughs> and there was something in me so broken and stubborn and disobedient <laughs> that I was like, no, I actually thought we'd go get coffee, and I stayed in the turn lane to like go to Woods Coffee, which was on the way to work. I wasn't gonna go to Woods. I didn't actually even want coffee that morning. But I was not gonna, I was not gonna give her the satisfaction of like getting in the other lane at her suggestion, right? Now, can we love Jesus and struggle with submission? I would argue yes, right? And I would argue that the whole walk of Christianity is, is, is wrestling with the lordship of Christ. Where what does it look like? If, if I abdicate the throne of my own life and he is reigning, then what does that look like? And the process of sanctification is like 
is his pruning in us and us giving up of areas that, that, that still need to reflect him more, right? And so love and obedience are inseparable. This is why in John 15, we read these words, my command <clears throat> is this, love each other as I have loved you. Ooh, that's a lot. Because greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. See, if we love God, we obey him. Our obedience is born of love. And, and, and again, I, I see this working with teenagers all the time. Because we have this rule that I kind of wish we didn't have at school, which is like, don't chew gum. I get why we have it, because like, all you have to do is turn over a table and there's like gum under it, <laughs> which I'm like, the trash can's right there. I don't, I don't understand, right? So I get why we have the rule, but like, I like to chew gum. Chewing gum actually helps me focus. Like, so if I was the one making the rules, I probably wouldn't have the rule. But you know how those kids are, not us adults, <laughs> but those, those, those teens, every now and then they're chewing gum at school. <laughs> and if a teacher that they don't know or a teacher that they don't like tells them to spit out the gum, you can see some warring in them of how they're going to respond or how timely they're going to respond or with what fragrance of the heart they are going to respond. Or if a teacher that they do know or that they have a relationship with says, dude, spit out the gum. They might be like, all right, and they, and they toss it. Like, relationship matters because obedience that's not attached to love just becomes behavior modification. But obedience, that's a result of love, is because our heart is being transformed. And because of this love, we are now desiring to follow the things of, of God. And what he tells us is that we are to love. He commands us to love. And what I love about Christ and, and Paul when he says, follow me as I follow Christ, because he reflected this, is that neither one of them just says, you better do it. You better love, you better sacrifice, you better be obedient. But like Christ himself is an example of sacrifice, love, and obedience because Philippians tells us that he was obedient, uh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? So this obedience that Paul's referring to is this obedience to Christ who himself set an example for us. Oh, look, I actually have the verse that I just quoted. Let's look at it. <laughs> Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Paul is actually following this example when he's encouraging Philemon to do the same thing. Because look at uh, Philemon here. 
verse 19. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self. Well, what is Paul offering here? He's saying, if Onesimus owes you a debt, I will pay it. Didn't we owe a debt? Didn't Christ pay it on our behalf? So now his righteousness is imputed to us. So now Paul is living in a way that reflects the gift that God had given him. And when he says, you owe me yourself, probably because Philemon had come to faith through the ministry of Paul. So, so think about it. We all owe a debt because Christ died for us and someone helped lead us and to Christ as the Holy Spirit drew us to the Lord. So no one is without debt. And so Paul is going to absorb the cost. It's not just because Paul cares about Onesimus, but it's because Paul understands that as Christ absorbed the cost of our sin, living a life of love is going to require us to do the same. That the core of forgiveness is being willing to, to bear the cost of the offense. And what friendship, what relationship is there that, that never has an offense? Whether it's, it's intended or not. And sometimes the levels of those offense are, are, are small, like someone chewing really loudly when you're annoyed to much more significant things, right? And so this idea of love and forgiveness and bearing the cost, there's a word that scripture uses for that and it's reconciliation. We have been reconciled to Christ and now we have the ministry of reconciling others primarily and firstly in relationship to Christ, but then also just practically in life as things come up. And if you read through the New Testament, things came up all the time. Sometimes people are like, oh, the New Testament church, it was so great. Well, it actually records a lot of like relational things and it records a lot of false teaching that they were fighting against and it, it records a lot of difficulty because People are people and the world is broken, so maybe the specifics change, but I don't think the reality, generally speaking, has changed that much, right? So listen to what Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I mean, what, what a gift, but also what an amazing responsibility that we've been left with. 
This is why unity in the church is so important and it's why division and disagreement in the church is so problematic because it sends a false message about who Christ is. Because if Christ is the one who reconciles, if Christ is the one who has borne the harm, if Christ is the one who says, this is what it looks like to live for me, and then the people who are supposed to reflect him don't live that way, then how is the world to see what Christ looks like? So friends, it matters how we live out this calling. It matters. Yeah, but you don't know what they did. I know. I know, I don't. but I don't think it matters. And we'll, we'll talk about a couple specifics here in a minute because I want to be really clear here, but what Christ did for us is what we, in his strength, are to do with others. And this is why Paul is confident of Philemon's obedience because he is confident of Philemon's faith and trust in Christ. And we serve a just God. We serve a good God. And so in some of letting go of the things, we can also trust that God's healing and restoration and goodness and justice in the end is going to make all things right in ways that we may not even be able to know or understand now. So as the worship team uh, comes and gets in place, and as we start to turn our thoughts towards communion, I want to just make a couple final, couple final thoughts. Reconciliation does not mean blind trust or blind forgiveness in the sense of well, it's saying like it doesn't matter. And then someone who has harmed you saying, well, I guess I have to be friends or I, I guess I have to go back to that situation. That's not what we're saying, right? It doesn't mean that where there has been broken law or severe trauma that we don't also say there needs to be consequence or there needs to be penalty because God is a God of justice. What it does mean is that we are reconciliation-oriented, right? That we are we are hopeful in the sense that all people would be reconciled to Christ and that forgiveness would be our overarching agenda. Here's the other difficult thing about reconciliation. It's a two-way street. So sometimes we may do the work of coming to God and saying, Lord, I need you to help me even want to forgive? Because sometimes our prayer has to start with that, right? Like, I don't even want to forgive the person. <laughs> but thank God, would you help me? And allowing him to, to clean the wound emotionally or, or spiritually that is there, because just like a physical wound that doesn't get cleaned out, what does it do? It festers, it gets infected. And so we allow God to work in our lives, taking even deep, deep things, so that we are in a place where, where reconciliation could happen. And again, reconciliation does not mean we're, we're besties. It doesn't mean we're hanging out with each other all the time. But it's just that we're not holding on to the anger or the bitterness or the trauma because we've allowed God to take that. 
But sometimes we might actually get to that place, but the other person is not willing to be reconciled. And that's hard, but, but we can't force that. Just the same way that God is willing to reconcile, like Jesus did all the work so that people could be reconciled if there is repentance. But not everybody is going to do that. Some will continue to reject. So we can't force it. But we live in a way that is so gospel-oriented, that is so rooted in love and obedience for Christ, that is so reminded of all that he has forgiven us for, all that he has sacrificed, and we say, okay, I'm an empty vessel, God, help me live that way in others. And so, you know, I, I hope that you had the opportunity to, to grab the elements on your way in. But, you know, one of the interesting taglines in this passage that we refer to in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he did this. And he led his disciples in this. On the night, knowing he would be betrayed. This is still what he tells us. So I think it's powerfully fitting for what we're talking about today. And so on that night, he, he took the bread and, and he gave thanks and he, and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for, for you. And he told them to, to take and in, in, in receiving that element to remember the deep, deep reconciliation he was offering and making a way for between us and God. So would you, would you take the elements of the bread as we remember what Jesus did? And that very same night after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that whenever you take it and, and drink it, you should remember, remember what I've done. And, I, and friends, I think that's the key in, in so many difficult situations where we really are offended or we have been wronged is to remember what Christ has done for us and allow him to help us share in that suffering of reconciliation sometimes. And he said, when you do this, you, you proclaim the Lord's coming until he returns. So this whole life we live is one where reconciliation may be ever before us. But the fact that we're waiting for Christ to return also reminds us that there's only so much time for people to be reconciled to God. And that it matters how we live. And it matters that people have opportunity to receive that reconciliation. So let's proclaim the Lord is coming back and let's remember as we also partake in the cup this morning. I'm going to pray and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Remembering how Jesus paid it all for us. So would you... Would you stand to your feet in this place?
as we pray and prepare to remember and worship. And would you pray with me? God, where would we be without your love and obedience to the will of the Father that came to do the work of reconciliation on our behalf? God, what great debt you paid for us. So Lord, I just ask that you would help any who are struggling even with their own relationship with you to receive that gift this morning and, and to be encouraged that if we are in you, then, then past failures and past debt, it has been paid. It has been canceled. The ledger has been wiped clean. And there is now no condemnation if we are in you. I also pray, God, that you would help us to be people who live this way towards others. And that, Lord, we would be your ambassadors of reconciliation, knowing that you love us and you want us to go and love others. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.